Welcome to Guys Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on the show, we have Warren McGrew back with us. Warren? Glad to be here, Chris. Glad to be here. I'm, I'm excited about tonight's topic. I'm excited, too. Every time I hear your name, I think of, like, Scruff McGruff, like a Warren McGrew. I don't know. I, I, I got that a lot in school. I was always compared to McGruff the crime dog. Uh, <laughs> never, never, uh, you know, I'll be uh, 43 this year, and I'm, apparently I still am not able to live that down. Right. I don't know why it triggers in my mind. It just kind of does. Maybe it's just how the name fits together. And oh, I, I, I take no offense. I'm, I, I think it's funny. It's a good person. It, good person to be compared to. I was always, people like trying to tease me, Fisher Price or something like that. Scruff McGruff, I'd take that. That works. But tonight we are going to be talking about your favorite subject. I don't know if it's your favorite subject. It's your only debate subject is uh, the doctrines of TULIP which is uh, in Calvinism. Uh, Calvinism has five points, and these five points may have been a response to Arminians pulling up five points of disagreement with Calvinism, but commonly known as TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance, perseverance, perseverance or preservation of the saints. Uh, take your pick, kind of, kind of the same idea. But today we are going to go over proof texts for the Calvinists. They have a, a big list of uh, proof texts on what looks like this homework assignment for some sort of mother homeschooling her kids. They 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 just they wrote a big uh, chart full of verses. And uh, what Calvinists like to do is they like to say Calvinism's true. Here's my list of verses, and so they just assume that their verses, whatever they list out, they shotgun a ton of them. And they just kind of like to assume whatever those verses say, just just because they throw them in a spreadsheet or something, that it proves the point that they're trying to make. Is that is that your experience? Yeah, it, you know, it, it's uh, it's funny because they'll they'll slice and dice and they'll rip out various passages and they'll say, "Look, this deals with sin, so you need to read into this my philosophy." Or, "Look here, it, it's dealing with." the elect. So you need to use my definitions regardless of the context. And uh, yeah, so anytime you're getting just lobbed one passage after another, after another, after another, so so often, I don't want to say in every case, but in so often, it's more of an attempt to silence you rather than it, than it is to be a good Berean and, and study the scriptures and say, well, let's consider this together. Instead, they just want to say, look at all this overwhelming proof text I have. Now stop talking and just accept it. Right, and, absolutely. Uh, that's not good Berean. Yeah, they, they like to do proof texting in the worst sense of the word. Usually when, when you want to debate something and you want to have a series of uh, debate evidences, you want those proof texts to be about the subject that you're talking about. Like there, there's, there's context there. It's pretty clear. From, from your proof texts or from your debate points, from your evidence, that that's what your evidence is about. But Calvinist proof texting seems to be something entirely opposite. It, it Instead, it's looking for slight phrases, which being very, very generous is affirming their ideas. But the context doesn't say it. Um, so it's, it's, it's proof texting in the worst sense where 
you already have to believe your system in order to accept those as proof texts for your system. And instead of actually having a list of proof texts, they have a list of texts that they like to read their system into. To be fair, uh, being an ex-Calvinist, I, I, my heart goes out to them because uh, cognitive dissonance um, and indoctrination are powerful things to overcome. So when you get this little homework assignment from your mom or from your Sunday school teacher and you're five years old and they're teaching you that scripture tells you that you're born spiritually dead, guilty, and sinful, and you're taught to read into these passages their philosophy, it gets ingrained. And uh, depending on you know how long you've been exposed to that, it can really be difficult to actually stop and read the written word as it's written. So scripture will say they have eyes but don't see. And that's because they have eyes, but instead of reading what's written in the text of scripture, they read it, but in their mind, they're already inferring that it's a, saying something that it's not. And that's a very difficult thing for anyone who's indoctrinated in the indie system to break through. And so... Hopefully, we'll jar a few of them loose tonight. Yeah, I think it's funny. Uh, just just like yesterday or two days ago, I was talking to this Calvinist about Genesis 6, and he didn't want to talk about Genesis 6 very much. And so he wanted to talk about his proof text. So he's like, have you ever read Isaiah? And he's like, oh, God declares from the beginning and brings it to pass. I'm like, yeah, what what's happening there? Who does God declare? When does the context define as the beginning? Uh, what's going on? Is is God having discursive thoughts in this passage? And then cricket, crickets. It's yeah. like uh, he, he he's never really considered what's going on in his own proof text uh, to answer basic questions, uh, just just basic questions about his own proof text that completely undermine his uh, system of theology. And, and as, a, as a Calvinist, I I held probably fifteen different conflicting not not. Um, harmonious beliefs, but conflicting beliefs. You know, so I would affirm total depravity, but I would also affirm the incarnation. And I didn't realize how that these things were completely at odds with each other because you're never really, when you're in this system, you don't stop and question, wait a minute, this disagrees with this. How do these work together? You're taught, well, these are true. And if you don't understand it, God's ways are higher than your ways. Let's appeal to mystery and move on. And so, it's a really great coping mechanism rather than actually stopping and challenging one's own beliefs. I just say, oh, only God knows, and I'll have to trust him. And I appeal to faith as a cover for my own inconsistencies. Um, yeah. So we will start off but on the same subject, actually. We'll talk about total depravity. Can you sum up in your own words what total depravity means in your mind when you hear it? Um, I'll, I'll tell you the way I define it and some of the consequences that I associate with it. But total depravity is an, um, a variation of Augustinian sin doctrine, meaning it's a type of original sin. But uh, it teaches that because of Adam's transgression in Eden, all mankind, all of Adam's progeny, all of his offspring are created or generated through some sort of deist means. You, you can have two different camps. But essentially, man is now born spiritually dead, guilty, sinful, and unable to desire help from God, unable to understand 
the truth of who God is or understand. And, and so it, it attacks reason. It denies the incarnation uh, of Christ as articulated in Hebrews, where it says he came in our flesh and blood like us in every respect. And I believe that it rightly meets the warning in First uh, John, where it says to deny this is the spirit of Antichrist. But that doesn't mean that uh, I think everyone who's been deceived by that uh, is an Antichrist. I think they've been duped by the spirit of Antichrist. And, um, but it's, it's a very dangerous doctrine, and it promotes sin and all sorts of horrendous things. And, and it's, it's my pet uh, topic because I, I believe, as a, as a former Calvinist, that all of the points hinge on this one thing, or at least my understanding of Calvinism did. And so when God, through his scripture, showed me that this was flatly uh, Antichrist, I stood in my room crying because I didn't know what it was to be a Christian. Because when total depravity went, all of Calvinism crumbled, and I didn't think I was a Christian anymore. That was a very terrifying hour and a half. But I will tell you this, for any Calvinists out there watching, when you sweep away the wood, hay, and stubble of Calvinism, it's, it's a wonderful thing to plant your feet firmly on the sure foundation and cry out to Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful humiliating, wonderful, um, glorious experience. And we shouldn't be afraid to follow uh, the Spirit, and we shouldn't be afraid to trust God's Word or dig into it and challenge some of these doctrines that we've come to revere as essential Christian truths. So I got pulled up uh, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Louis Burkhoff, uh, I had the picture pulled up. I did a query on this Calvinist site once of the best Calvinist systematic theologies. Louis Burkhoff was one of the ranking ones. And I think he describes total depravity fairly well in his systematic theology. This this is the Calvinist take on it. So it's, it's a Calvinist-friendly source. He says that uh, no matter how good a person may be by common grace, no matter how high is his degree of relative goodness, no matter how much he contributes to the well-being of society, no matter how little the degree of sin or the extent of God's common grace to him, he will always fail in this respect. He cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, as Paul says, apart from God's saving grace, cannot do anything that deserves God's blessings. Seizing on that cannot, other Calvinists prefer the phrase total inability to the phrase total depravity. We cannot please God, and therefore we cannot save ourselves from his wrath. So that's that's one of the primary things that uh, flags in my mind when I hear that. I also got pulled up other, here, here's a neutral source. This neutral source is uh, from an AP study guide. Uh, and uh, well, uh, first of all, we talked about Calvinists holding conflicting beliefs. Calvinists believe God's immutable and impassable. Immutable means he can't change. Impassable means that he can't be affected. And so when they talk about people cannot please God, who are totally depraved. Right, you talk about a conflicting statement right there. Right, they believe no one could, no one can affect God. No one can please God. God cannot gain from outside himself. And yet, yet they'll say that, that Christ had to come because we stole honor from God and we robbed him of the glory that he deserved. And they use all of this non-immutable language while appealing to his immutability. Yeah, so I think that's funny. Uh, turning to the AP uh, history guide, 
and, and and John Piper, I got him pulled up too. We don't necessarily have to go. And we got this crazy reverend guy. We don't have to talk about him. But I got them pulled up just for further confirmation of what it is conceptually, this total depravity. This belief essentially affirms the idea that all people are sinners and will never be good enough to save themselves. Calvin was influenced heavily, blah, blah, blah. This idea doesn't necessarily mean that all human beings are totally evil and don't have any goodness in them whatsoever. It basically just means that on their own, people are unable to choose to follow God. It assumes that people will most naturally just look out for themselves and are not worried about honoring God. This plays into the larger theological question of original sin. And so for total depravity to be true, people have to be born totally depraved. This this goes into the idea of original sin. Original sin is the reason that why we all have this total depravity. I think it's funny in debates with Calvinists when we start talking about Adam, did Adam have original sin? Did he have a sin nature and stuff like They don't want to answer those questions because their theology really doesn't have an answer. A good example of this is the Jonathan Pritchett, Theodore Zacharides uh, debate. In Ooh, which that they, was a good one, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they <laughs> tried to get them to answer this question and they wouldn't. The Calvinists, they don't have an answer for this. All people are naturally evil. No one can choose God, and it's because of this inherent sinfulness uh, through the sin of Adam, which is passed down generationally. Uh, they say, we cannot choose good. Well, could Adam choose good? Uh, they don't want to answer that because that uh, presents some sort of problem with their system. But th that, that basically, in a nutshell, is total depravity. We cannot please God. If, if we're totally depraved, there's nothing we could do. Uh, if someone saves their child from, from murderers, they do not please God in that act if they're not elect, if they're not one of the chosen. That's not a good act. That's an act out of selfishness. It's an act in rebellion of God any good act. And and John Piper talks about that we don't have to read John Piper, but anyone Thanks. could anyone could go to his article that uh, talks about the five points about Calvinism and he goes in pretty detailed about it. This is their idea. Mm -hmm. So the goal of this podcast is to look at this list of proof texts and see if their proof texts prove what we just talked about. And so we'll start with Genesis uh, 2:17. So let's let's see what that says. Genesis two seventeen, and these are in no particular. We're just going to go in order. I I think what we should do is we'll do three of the T, and then we'll move to unconditional election and do three, and then we'll see how far we get. We'll go through the P's, and then we'll 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 cycle back to the T. That and you know what we want to do is. This, this is a random sampling because we didn't order these verses. These verses were ordered by Calvinists. Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Total depravity, yes or no? No, <clears throat> absolutely not. All right, so... It actually, it actually undermines the Calvinist definition of sin as well because... In Hebrew, it says uh, "muth muth." It's um, so so. Basically, the literal translation is "dying you shall die." That sin equates to suicide, separation from the tree of life. And but there's nothing inherently in there where we read 
of man's spiritual condition being separate from the total man. This right. is God talking to the total man, Adam. And, and more, than, more than that, when you look at the Hebrew word of age, uh, it says, you know, in the day you eat of it or the age you eat in of it, uh, in the season, the time, that word can mean yesterday, it can mean today, tomorrow, 24 hours, it can mean a year. And I'll try to say that in that moment, this text is saying Adam died spiritually and cursed all of his offspring and that they're all born guilty. But none of that is actually present in the text. So you're, you're going to have to help me out here. Uh, so total depravity is man cannot please God. Man is totally devoid of all goodness apart from God. Uh, original sin that uh, it's inherent uh, in newborn babies, this separation from God, and no one can approach God. Genesis 2.17, what is in the Calvinist's mind when they think that this proves any of those things? Because I, I'm reading this, and it's just God saying, don't eat of this tree. There's a tree, and it has some fruit on it, and uh, don't eat on this tree. And then a Calvinist, they will read this and they'll say, total depravity. God told someone not to do something. Uh, so you help me out here. What is in their mind? Why Why is this a proof text? Why, why is this listed? I'll put my Calvinist glasses back on. And, uh, and I'll tell you that when they read that latter part, in the day you eat of it, you will die. They believe that when Adam ate of the fruit, that he, he died spiritually and became a, a, essentially a, a, a zombie, a corpse with no, no live spirit, no live soul, that he died spiritually. Um, but then they'll turn around and they'll say that he procreated and gave life to people that are equally dead. And uh, so they read all of these consequences into this, uh, but he's just saying that, hey, look, when you separate yourself from me, life, dying, you will die. You choose sin, you choose death. And you'll, you're, you're going to be kicked out of Eden. You're not going to have access to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As we read contextually, we see that this is about the consequences of sin and mortality, right? Mortality. Um, but they'll read into this, this dualistic spirit versus the natural man and, and all of this. They have a lot of baggage that they pack into it. Yeah, so I, I think it's this is an excellent example of what we're talking about, terrible proof texting, proof texting in the worst sense of the word. So you have to start with this idea of total depravity. You have to come to this verse, and then you have to grab a little word out of this verse and think that this word means total depravity, and then say, see, this verse is about total depravity. Whereas a normal natural reading, yeah, you know, my kids read this verse with me and they thought it was about mortality, <laughs> dying. They'll seize, they'll seize on the word die and they'll say, God really should have said, he, he, he secretly meant, and if you were elect and regenerated, you would know this because you get divine revelation to read into the text. But God really meant that you will spiritually die and thus curse all of your progeny with all of these horrendous uh, consequences. But it just says if you do this, you're going to die. Yeah, so uh, this is why it's really important. that My concept when dealing with Calvinists and they shotgun proof text, if you read the first proof text and it has nothing to do with their point, you could just dismiss them all. 
It's a waste of time. They, they have given zero thought to their own proof text that they're just shotgunning out to you. You're, you're not dealing with someone who cares about the text enough to treat the text honestly. And there's, there's, you're going to find there's various types of Calvinists. You know, I don't want to pigeonhole them all into one monolithic group, but I will say that for the average Calvinist, they have largely relegated thinking for themselves and studying God's word for themselves. And they say, so-and-so told me Calvinism's true, and so-and-so told me this verse teaches it. So I'm just going to take his word for it because, you know, like, like John MacArthur, he, he, he's worth $14 million. He wears a nice suit. He's got a Bible named after him. Why wouldn't I trust him? He's got a seminary. He says this verse teaches it, and they won't actually stop and dig in and, and do what you and I are doing, which is exegesis. They just take his word for it. And so what you find is, is that the average Calvinist really uh, doesn't read his Bible that much. Uh, they, they tend to read... Uh, proof texts. They tend to listen to sermons on uh, opinions of men God never affirmed. They read commentaries. Um, they do everything except read the scriptures and study the scriptures. If, if they did, they would be set free. And then you have another category of Calvinist where they've been indoctrinated and they read into this errors and they have, haven't really stopped to consider. And then you have perhaps the worst group, which is intentionally deceiving. And I've talked with pastors who said, we know this passage doesn't teach it, but we're going to keep teaching it from the pulpit because we believe this system is true. And I've had pastors actually admit that to my face. Um, and that, I think, is the most dangerous. The most dangerous. For, the, for the, the first category that just doesn't really do a lot of thinking, sometimes you can dump cold water on them and uh, the Lord will use that and get their attention and, and they'll start taking it seriously. Right, so so we'll go ahead and uh, move on to their second proof text, which is John three six. At least this one is cryptic enough that you could kind of say, ah, maybe. So John three six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So total depravity. So remember, total depravity is original sin. It's no one can please God. Everyone is uh, totally depraved from birth. They, they cannot approach God in any way. So John 3, 6, does that teach this? No, no it, it echoes the other sentiment, uh, similar sentiment throughout Scripture, which is to set your mind on gratifying the appetites of the body is to ignore setting your mind on the things pleasing to the Lord and, and, uh, and, and the Spirit. It's not, it's not that one is um, incapable of the other, because we're in flesh, but it's when you're focused on carnal pursuits, you don't want to be self-disciplined and follow the things of the Spirit. But again, they have to read this in a certain way uh, in order to add their doctrine to it. But it's just, it's just not there. Right. So they have to assume some concepts in. Uh, what's Jesus talking about? They have to assume that it's total depravity before they even get to this verse. Because if I hand this passage to someone who's never heard of the Bible, never heard of Jesus, I don't think they're going to walk away from this and say, oh, at all these concepts of total depravity, man cannot please God in any sense. Man is born totally depraved. There, there's n nothing a man can do in any way towards God. I don't think they're going to walk away with this. In fact, I think if people read this in context, God or Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, 
and he's trying to communicate something of value to Nicodemus. So if, if total depravity is true, why is Jesus having any of these conversations with anyone? Uh, because everyone's elect. Everyone has no choice in the matter. It's, it's not useful information. Uh, and I, I drew a little comic about this where, where Jesus says, oh, you have to be one of the elect and you have to be spiritually regenerated by God. Like, like what's the practicality of this? How, how does that add to the story of what's happening here where God or Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus trying to give him what he has to do to be saved? No, it just it becomes semantics and, and, and a puppet show. There's there's absolutely no real meaning that can be conveyed or understood depending on what side of the fence you're on with within how they define election. It just it, it completely destroys reason. When God says he's making his appeal to us through the apostles and he says, Hey, come let us reason together, uh, all of these um, passages where God is imploring with men to return and to be reasoned with, uh, or, or Jesus is just simply speaking to, to men. It becomes completely semantics and, and um, it, it has, it, it loses any sort of meaning whatsoever. Right. Jesus is also notoriously cryptic in his conversations with people and he confuses all sorts of people all the time and sometimes willfully. So, uh, if he's talking in parables, if he's talking in metaphor, if he's talking parallel concepts, if he's talking in a lofty uh, speech, you know, th this could this has a huge range of possible meanings. When I read this, I just see, yeah, you got to start following God. You need to dedicate your life to God. That's what being born of the Spirit is. And I think if we read it in context, that's exactly what he says that uh, Nicodemus has to do. So verses like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Calvinists will read this, For God so loved some people, and the world is selected individuals within the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever, and they say, oh, whoever is not in the text, but really the concepts there, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What of practical value is Jesus teaching Nicodemus. It seems to me that uh, he's actually uh, evangelizing him, telling him something of practical value to get him to be one of the chosen or the elect or a believer of God, a worshiper of God. So in Calvinism, all the practicality is stripped from this verse. And Jesus, his only purpose is to proof text total depravity because there's no practical application of this text it, it becomes simply a thought experiment and um one of the, one of the sad things i think there's a is a, a an inability within their system to really understand the love of god to realize that jesus is imploring and teaching and calling and uh, admonishing and, and rebuking for reasons it's, it's he's, he's trying to get through to people and uh you know in in, in their systematic it, it's basically he's just saying this for the benefit of the elect who will be able to understand it um he's not trying to change minds or hearts if he wanted to really change minds he just do the calvinist you know sovereign snap of the fingers and we'd be instantly regenerated and have perfect knowledge and so 
But he's got a secret yeah. will. Yeah, in conflict it. with his revealed will. Yeah. <laughs> There's a meme that I think is really funny. You know, like those Scooby Doo's where where they find the ghost and they're like, "Let's see who's behind this mask." And it's like, uh, "God's revealed will is uh, let's see who's review uh, who's uh, contradicting, who's uh, opposing God's will." And they pull it off, and it's God's secret will that's opposing God, God's will. <laughs> But uh, next verse that they got here for a proof text, John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, when I read this, I see this as evidence against total depravity. Yes. Because Jesus is telling people, don't practice sin uh, because then you become a slave to sin. Your choices are the determining factor in who your allegiances lie to. Well, again, the Calvinists, with their their philosophy, they read the words, but they understand it thus. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who is born is sin. And and that's how they understand it. That it's it, it wasn't me, Lord, but Adam's sinful nature you gave me. I'm sin incarnate. I'm incapable. I'm unable. Uh, I was a slave to sin. I had no other choice. I'm not responsible for my sin. Uh, I'm a victim of this sinful nature that you and Adam conspired to give me. Um, But yet Jesus is saying, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And you can contrast this against other passages in, in Scripture where it says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. But the Calvinist will eisegete that as well, and they'll say, you can't practice righteous. No one is righteous. No, not one. And they'll, again, ignore the entire context and the reference of these passages. Yeah. That was just a thought experiment. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, so, again, we see this terrible proof texting where where they, they look over the Bible with a fine-tooth comb to find one phrase that can be taken, that possibly can be taken to mean their theology there's nothing in context that talks about total depravity. This, these phrases are not defined in their system, in the context. And, and their view of slavery is very peculiar, too. And, and, and you sit back and you say, well, is this a bond servant? Or is this like uh, someone within the, the, the blight of the American slave trade where you have just excessive abuses? Their view of slavery is completely different because... In their mind, the slave wants to be a slave and, and can do nothing but. Uh, and, and, and when we read scripture, we see that often people go into bondage and desire to be set free. But in their systematic, they have to ignore that a slave can yearn for freedom. They also have to ignore normal latitude range of uh, language. If I, I'd say my kids are a slave to the computer, I'm not using metaphysical language right and so there's nothing in here to suggest that this is a proof text for their view there's other valid rational options and the only way that they would list this in a list of proof texts is if they don't actually have any proof texts that actually describe this concept as being biblical all it would take all it would take to convince me calvinism is true is a passage in scripture saying that Something to this effect, that because Adam sinned, we're all born spiritually dead, guilty, sinful, and unable. That's all it would take to convince me. An actual <laughs> passage stating what the doctrine teaches. 
but it doesn't exist. Right, which would, it's pretty cruel of the Calvinist God to foresee all future events and all these open theists who would be asking for this one piece of evidence and then that piece of evidence not existing in the Bible. That's, that's pretty cruel of God in their system. Well, you know, if we were regenerated, we would have special revelation and that Gnostic, I mean, that we would have that, that knowledge. We got the special uh, Calvinist God goggles. really secretly meant to add it to the text. Right. We just have to read it. And if you, it's like one of those hidden pictures, you have to look at it in the right way and it pops out. It's, it's so obvious. And I think it's so funny when I deal with these people, it doesn't, they, they, they don't care what the scholars say. They don't care what the lay people say. Only fellow Calvinist opinions matter on any single passage. When, when you're trying to tell them what common reading comprehension would give about a passage, they don't care about the scholars or the laymen. Only fellow Calvinists. Well, I, I was a I was a pretty sheltered Calvinist. You know, I, when I would encounter a, a challenge, I would run to my Calvinist sources because I thought I could trust them. And I didn't realize at the time what I was doing was not challenging myself or my, my doctrine, but I was trying to find safety and security in the opinions and philosophy of men. And uh, when total depravity and the rest of Tula crumbled i then spent a year relearning scripture but i i would listen to as many different interpretations of a passage as possible because i i had to force that on myself to consider that maybe there's more than one meaning or one understanding uh, and then i could look at the passage with a, a different understanding and say well is that actually present no that's not present well is this present kind of oh well this is the clear answer but as calvinists speaking from personal experience i i ran to places that i thought i could trust not realizing that i was engaging in confirmation bias i just didn't realize that's what i was doing um until i'd been set free and um so my heart goes out to a lot of calvinists i pick on them uh i love them uh i expose their theology as, as erroneous and, and in opposition to scripture but I totally understand why many of them are in that bondage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's there. There's a paper that uh, I posted that someone sent to me, anonymous, that talks about the milieu control of Calvinists, where Calvinists get into this almost cult-like bubble, where their their thoughts are controlled by their leaders. Such that uh, they they have to think about everything in specific ways, but it's not that's not the subject of this podcast today. Of course, uh, instead we're going to move on to unconditional election. What's your your uh, take on not your take necessarily your definition how how you would define the concept of unconditional election? Uh, depending on if you're a supra or an uh, infralapsarian, um, generally the idea is that before God created anything, uh, in eternity past, he determined the fall and then determined to bring about Christ so that he could have maximal glory. And within that, separated two groups of men before they had done anything good or evil and that he had determined that some were destined to hell um, and some were uh, going to get this special dose of unique grace, um, which we'll 
talk to in a, in a little bit, and he will save that specific group. And it's not it's not a general group where people can respond and come in and out of depending on their choices. Because but that would be conditional. That would be conditional. So this is something that it has you have no bearing on your own eternal fate at all. Your obedience, your disobedience, your sin, your righteousness, whether you are uh, a, a loving person or the most evil and hateful murderer out there, your salvation is completely um, outside of anything that you will do, would do, or have done because it occurred before you ever existed. And likewise, so does your damnation. So this is... This is the concept of a global lottery. Before you're even born, independent of anything you say, do, and believe, you were either chosen or not chosen. That's what it means by unconditional. A conditional election would be God only saves those who conform to righteous standards, maybe. Or God only, if you're, if you're a faith alone guy, God only saves you if you have faith, those are conditions. Mental so, assent, just mental assent, right? We're talking like, you know, easy believism. Even that would be considered a condition. So unconditional election, you're saved, period, or you're damned, period. No conditions, case closed. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's not not uh, a faith alone or it's not works faith. It's it's, it's not sola fide. It's not, it's not even even the, the, the solas. Uh-uh. That, that would come in response to this, uh, not lead to this. All right. So let's go look at their proof text. They, get, they got some. Oh, let, let's read this AP uh, history thing on this. The, the main idea of unconditional election is that God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. Once again, there's nothing that anyone can do to get saved on his own or her own, and they can never be good enough to be saved. The only way a person could become saved is being chosen by God. This means that God already knows and has always known who will be saved and who will go to hell. The people who he has planned to be saved are uh, known as the elect. This is a source of much conflict, uh, such as the predestination debate. And we got materials on predestination. But let's turn to their proof text. They got Romans 9.15. All right, before we turn there, are you, are, are you familiar with what they're going to say here? Um, yes. Oh, that's okay. We'll, we'll just read it. <laughs> Romans 9.15. For he says to Moses, this is God, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Unconditional election, yes or no? No. This, is, this has nothing to do with um, God preordaining a group in eternity past. This is, this is a rebuke to say, look, why are, why are you challenging me for saving some of the Gentiles? This is about those who believe. I've chosen to have mercy on those who believe and, and, and it's actually teaching conditions. Uh, this this passage actually is teaching conditions. And God says, who are you, O Calvinist, to speak back to me? You say, I can't have conditional salvation? Who are you, O man? I'm saying I will have mercy on who I will have mercy, compassion on who I have compassion, and these are the requirements that I've set in place. That's it's it funny. It completely undermines their position. 
So, so like back in those days, the Jews, uh, because uh, th- this is this is uh, the tribe of Judah. They're they're called Jews after the Babylonian captivity. The Jews thought that they were saved by virtue of being Jewish, and so the concept that God would allow Gentiles to become believers through conditions. This was uh, very disturbing to them. They didn't want to believe it. And the book of Romans, you could really sense Paul's, uh, his conflict with his readers. His readers are going to want to reject the things that he's saying. So he has to argue passionately in favor of the idea that God can choose choose to save some Gentiles. God can do that because... The Jews were known as the elect, and here he is saving non-elect. <laughs> right. It, so it's it after destroys like their their systematic on unconditional election, and it completely reveals that they're redefining terms. It's just scripture is beautiful because it shines a light on these errors. Right. If I say to my kids that I get to decide which of my kids get ice cream and how much, that doesn't mean that my choice to do that is non-conditional. Uh, typically, maybe my older kids, I might give more ice cream. Or if uh, there's a kid who's done something really good, they could get more ice cream. And maybe if there's a whiny kid, I will not give them ice cream. But the choice to give or not give ice cream is totally dependent on myself. And that seems to be Paul's actual point, rather than this uh, Calvinist unconditional election. You would expect, uh, we already talked about what unconditional election means, you'd expect to be some sort of equivalent explanation or definition that appears in this text rather than it being able to uh, be a proof text for my ice cream example. Yeah. Right. It, you shouldn't be able to make an ice cream example to undermine your proof text. Your proof text should be able to be clearly stating your theology or dogma because it's your proof text. You, you, you got to, you got the whole Bible you, you were able to read the whole Bible, and you were able to pick your own proof texts, your proof text should actually say what your theology is. It shouldn't be like this guessing game. Like, well, maybe, and maybe it must mean this, and then uh, it, it should, should be clear. You squint, and you copy and paste, and cut out sections, and rewrite, and redefine. Then my, my proof text works perfectly. That's not how, that's not how it really should, should work here. Um, you're absolutely right. If if you're going to sit back and say, the Bible teaches this, and I say, where does the Bible teach that? And then you go, well, it really doesn't. But here's a verse that kind of is somewhat related to that, that topic. Well, then you're going, well, wait a minute, why are you saying the Bible teaches that? That's an extra biblical philosophy. The scripture in this case is just window dressing. And so Bob Enyart makes a great point with this passage. He states, when the Calvinists read this, they insert the word arbitrarily. I I will arbitrarily have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will arbitrarily have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends on human will or or exertion, but on God who has arbitrary mercy. It's an inserted concept that we don't find in the verse. And God, God loves those who love him. <laughs> it, it's, it's not hard. And if the Gentiles are going to love God, he's going to graft them in because uh, he wants relationships, which they think he's impassable. And uh, all these ideas of compassion and mercy, they, they sound like temporal discursive thoughts to me. 
Uh, well, and, and they really have a problem with the loving, merciful God because they want a sovereign, vengeful, wrathful God. And my, my heart's desire for these people is that they come to know the loving, merciful God before they actually stand before the wrathful, judging God because they may find themselves on the wrong side of the fence there, regardless of what they assume about their own election. Um, God, God desires mercy more than judgment. And he says in Isaiah 55, 7, one of my favorite examples, it says, let the wicked forsake his wicked ways and the unrighteous his thoughts and let them return to me and I will abundantly pardon. That's, that's conditional right there. If you do this, I will do that. And the ifs are present throughout all of scripture, but unconditional election says, just, just ignore those. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't like those. We're, we're going to uh, ignore that. And that'll sweep in as we get to the P uh, in Tulip. You'll see how that carries through. Okay, so next, unconditional election. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. A plan of the fullness of the time to unite all things in him, things in the heaven and things on earth in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory i might have read that pretty fast because uh at one time i had all of ephesians memorized so i could i could like go through this without even awesome. really thinking but uh, good times, Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Uh, unconditional election. No, no, the, the condition is repeated repeatedly in him. And uh, the Augustinian and the Calvinists tend to overlook the in him as conditional, and they just assume that it has to do with uh, an a, um, irresistible eternal decree that was destined to come up to pass and they ignore the condition in him. Um, and they also kind of ignore the entire reference to this because before God created man, he said, let's go and create man in our image and likeness. And the whole purpose there was that we would be as Christ in Eden. The whole fact that Adam sinned is, is contrary to God's uh, his will and, and purpose as he articulated it. So God wanted us to be. If you look here, he says that, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption. So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And, and they kind of ignore these conditions that are that are stated there and that man can meet them or man can fail to meet them. And when we fail to meet them, we're rightly condemned. And when we meet them, we meet the condition that God set in place. So and, and how do we, do that? we meet that by being in him. Very important. Unconditional election is the idea that regardless of anything in ourselves, God has chose us unconditionally. And so 
For this to be a proof text, it'd have to say something like that. Even as he arbitrarily chose us in him before the foundation of the world, it doesn't say that. Let's let's pretend you're a standard Arminian, you're not an open theist, and you think God looks into the future and sees who the people are that are going to meet the conditions for salvation, and he chose us those people. That fulfills this pretty easily. You don't, you don't have to be a Calvinist. You don't have to read unconditional election. Let's say you're an open theist and this is a corporate thing. Like, I understand that I'm going to raise my children to be Christians. That doesn't mean eternally I had in my mind specific mm-hmm. children that I'm always always going to, going to have or anything like that. It's a corporate choosing. I'm choosing a specific group of people that uh, gets, gets filled in as time progresses. It's, it's like uh, in Revelation, you see people being blotted or added to the book of life. Uh, it's, it's a corporate, the book of life is a corporate list of people who at any specific time are followers of God, which people can be grafted in and grafted out as we see in, in Romans. And so you have to, if you want this to be your proof text, you have to discount any notions of corporate choosing, corporate election, corporate predestination. I believe it's about the individual and then add that it's unconditional. Those those are a lot of steps that are not not present in the text. I, I'm not reading those those leaps in the text. Again, mm-hmm. we, we are running into a case where you have to believe your theory, your your system of theology before you come to the text to see it in the text. Romans nine eleven. I guess we're going back to Romans nine. So we probably got a good uh, idea about what this is going to say. This is about uh, Jacob and Esau. And not so, but only when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Unconditional election. Nope. Why not? There's nothing There's nothing in here. Here that that would speak to the Calvinist defining of unconditional election. Even if even if you were to concede the point, which I don't, that what God did with with uh, Jacob and Esau had no conditions in it at all, that doesn't automatically uh, mean that that applies universally to everyone. But if we actually read what happened with Jacob and Esau and why God chose one over the other before they'd done anything, we still see conditions. Um, and, and we see here that this is so that God's purpose may continue. But again, you have to redefine what election is. You have to sit back and say that you understand the purpose of God, and and, and they don't. Um, and there's there's nothing in here that is dealing with an eternity past, a random arbitrary decree that I'm going to save Chris and damn Warren. It, there's nothing. There's nothing in here like that. Right. So you, as you dig into the context too, and you start pulling that onion back, it, it, it's going to crumble even further. I don't know if we have time and you want to get that deep into it, but it's not there. Right. It, it might, might seem like it's there because they claim it's there and the words kind of sound like that. There's, there's one condition that we know that's not being fulfilled, either good nor bad. But what they have to do is universalize this text and assume that Paul's material point is about salvation rather than God's uh, ability to choose to save Gentiles who decide to become Christ followers, right? And so what's Paul's material point 
And to what extent is is this applicable to everyone, applicable to Paul's overall point? How is this being used by Paul? This is a specific anecdotal example, probably so limited in scope. It's a callback, too, to the Old Testament. And what the Calvinist often, I would say overwhelmingly, doesn't realize or fails to see is that God working throughout the Old Testament was to bring about his promised response to sin in Genesis 3.15, that I'm going to send a redeemer, I'm going to come and save you, that there's going to be this Messiah figure who rises up as a descendant of Adam, and all of this continued prophecy where he says, all right, I'm going to bring him out of this line, and I'm going to bring him out of that line. And so this purpose of election, this, this nation of Israel that he's forming and working and He's promised, I'm going to bring the Messiah out of that. They start to see, instead of the Old Testament being a, 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 a walking forward where God is bringing our deliverer uh, and our redeemer, they start to see it as, oh, it's, it's really not about the nation of Israel and on our Jewish Messiah, our redeemer, the son of God. They start to say, this is about me. This is about little old me. And God was thinking about me. He wasn't thinking about you know, the Jews and Jesus and Gentiles, he's just thinking about me. And uh, and they, they make it hyper-personal. All right. So uh, we got to move on. We're, we're getting pretty late. So we'll go to limited atonement. What is limited atonement? Oh, goodness. That's the, the belief that uh, Jesus only died for the elect. We just read of unconditional election, and they think that it would be unjust if Jesus died for everyone so he only died, his, his, his sacrifice, his life, death, resurrection, had finite value, and that was contained only to the elect to salvation. No, no, no. It had infinite value to finite people, as they're going to be their claim. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but they will claim that if Jesus died for someone and that person didn't go to heaven, then God is a failure. And you see this everywhere. This, this is their claim. And so the idea is that God can't fail in reaching anyone that he, that's actually irresistible grace. That's our next one. That's I, but God can't fail in the people that he reaches out to. And so there's, there's no one that's reached out to who uh, actually uh, uh, resists and falls away. And there's no one who's, who's not Christian who hasn't been reached out to. So limited atonement. They basically will point to the Exodus parable and they'll say that only those who had the blood applied uh, to their doorpost will be saved. And they, they try to, they try to limit it that way. Often they'll go to this through like a penal substitutionary atonement, but it is that Christ's death, victory over sin, resurrection, all of that only applied to the elect who he had uh, decreed in eternity past. So we'll turn to this reverend guy, and uh, he, this is a funny article because this guy's all revved up, up about Tulip, and so it's like the crazy wing of Calvinism. He says, the second distortion of this biblical truth is that Christ died for all men. Some teach that Christ made it possible for all men to be saved, but the question that must be asked are, if Christ died for all men, uh, why not all are all men saved? 
Cannot God do what he desires to do? Is there something defective in Christ's death? Must man desire to be saved first? But a man who is totally depraved cannot will to be saved. He hates God and wants nothing to do with Christ's death. So it must not be said that Christ died for all men. Because God would fail if uh, God died for all of men. And so, or if Jesus died for all men. So we turn to their first proof text, John 3, 3 through 8. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I said to you, unless one is born water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we kind of already read this and went over this. This is being used for, of course, uh, limited atonement. God, God, or Jesus only died for the elect. Limited atonement. Is that is this a good proof text? It, it actually undermines unconditional uh, election because there's a condition stated right there. Uh, and there's nothing about limited atonement um, anywhere in the text. There is absolutely nothing. I it's These are one of the proof texts where you, you really got to try to strain to see what exactly they think is in this proof text that proves their point. And this this is this is a common problem when I'm dealing with Calvinists. They'll they'll give proof text. I'll read the proof text, and I'll be confused. Uh, it's I I don't see in this proof text how this applies to your belief. Like the like the tree one. It's like there's nothing in there that that talks about it. It's it's just not there. You're 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 going to have to do more than just give me a verse. You're going to have to literally explain it to me because I do not see it anywhere in the text. It, this is this is a consistent pattern that you'll see in defense of their their theology, where it's here's a verse dealing with sin. That means we're all born sinful, spiritually dead, guilty. Here's a verse about death. That means we're all born spiritually dead. Here's a verse about the need for Christ's. Uh, sacrifice and redemption and forgiveness and resurrection. So that proves our particular atonement theory. And so they, there's really nothing in there. And they, they see a reference to Christ and they go, well, that must be my understanding of Jesus. But they, they fail to see that their articulation is absent from the text or often refuted by it. All right, so we'll move on to Ephesians 2, because I just don't see what they're seeing in there. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind, which were by and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Uh, so anything in there about limited atonement? No, um, there's, there's, there's nothing in there about limited atonement, but we do see something that undermines their total depravity. Uh, we see here not that they were born dead, but that they died as a result of their trespasses. Um, we see that they weren't born with a nature, but that by sinning they developed one. 
we see that they weren't born guilty of Adam's sin, but they followed the devil into disobedience. Uh, so I would say that this proof text directly refutes their previous claims on their other point. But there's nothing in this passage that um, is, is uh, affirming what they're claiming it's affirming. Right. So limited atonement is that Jesus died only for the elect. I'm not seeing it here. They're going to have to explain to me how this is a proof text. This is a bad position to be in. If your proof text needs to be explained, and it's not clear what you're getting at from your proof text for the point you're trying to prove. It's not a good good situation to be in. John 6, uh, 35. I think we're all familiar with uh, this passage. It's a very, very common, common passage for these uh, Calvinists. John 6, 35. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Limited atonement. No. I don't see anything about there's there's atonement. nothing here where it, it, he's like oh this particular group and only this group uh, as a matter of fact he's saying you know you're not following me and it, it's it's implied that they could have done otherwise. Uh, very embarrassing is that this is not about the crucifixion whatsoever. The atonement is a crucifixion principle, and mm -hmm. Jesus, the people he preached to, to become worshippers of Yahweh to follow Jesus's teaching, it wasn't crucifixion related it wasn't so i don't see how this is atonement related i don't see how this, this is related. This is disciple it's disciple related it's discipleship it's following him um and again it, you know, that that necessitates a condition i so think it's follower necessitates that you're following someone um yeah. I, I think it's funny this is better read as a tasking that God gave Jesus a tasking to make sure that all his disciples were not lost. And later on, a few chapters later, towards the end of John, it says that Jesus did this except for one person. He lost one person. Do you know yeah, who this and, person is? And, and, and so, so here's, here's, that's a great point. Thank you. I wasn't sure how deep I could dig into this on this episode. So um, when, when Jesus says, this is the will of the Father that I lose none that he gives me. One of the reasons why Jesus said to the soldiers and the Pharisees and Judas when they came to him was because he was not going to lose any of the apostles. Meaning if he had not announced himself, if he had not surrendered, it was quite possible that some of his apostles might pull out a sword, go to war and die in the process. But so this is about their mortality more than it is about their eternal salvation. And we see that Jesus says that he lost none except Judas. Yeah, except for there, there's an exception. So it, it didn't happen. It's not metaphysics where, where there's no exceptions to the general rule. It's a tasking that was generally fulfilled. You could say mission accomplished, but there wasn't one exception. And it, it's funny. They, they want to see this as about atonement they want to see this as uh, crucifixion related salvation for all people forever it's not it's not to the people that jesus is directly talking to it's about all people forever 
And, and it's, it's, it's just major assumptions in this. And nothing here says Jesus died only for the elect. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not, none of this can be taken that way. Jesus died only for the elect. Especially due to the fact this is not about Jesus dying. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a big that's a big point to kind of forget when you're trying to proof text why jesus died to have passages that aren't dealing with it all right so irresistible grace this is the i in tulip so what does this mean oh ask five different calvinists and get five different answers um you can I, ask the Lig- ap okay go ahead ligonier says that um that uh in order for us to be drawn to the Father, we have to be compelled by force, as though dragged. Uh, Charles Spurgeon would say that it was uh, that we're wooed and lured by His love and, and kindness. But essentially, irresistible grace is that when God chooses to reveal our election to us, that we can't say no. Basically, that if you're chosen. You, you can't, they, the Calvinists, they'll say, you're dead in trespasses and sins. That means you can't choose Jesus. But even if you're made alive, you also can't not choose Jesus. It's, it sounds like you go from one state of deadness to another. Uh, it's it's actually pretty funny. So, so no matter what you do, whether or not you're chosen or not chosen, uh, there's nothing you can do. And uh, irresistible grace. Here's what AP says about this. Basically, it is in God's plan for if if it is in God's plan for a person to be saved, then they will definitely be saved. This idea also has heavy influences uh, of Augustine, who felt that God had irresistibly called him to turn his life over to God. Once again, this point uh, it points back to an emphasis on the sovereignty of God and the assumption that He has already chosen who He will save. So, I, I guess we could already understand what our crazy guy would say about this and he titles this section dragging and kicking and screaming to heaven i don't know but uh that's the idea if you're chosen there's nothing you can do we are just god's pawns and so maybe maybe there's a proof text about this we'll go to john 3 3 through 8 so we'll see if that means uh you you go you're kicking and screaming there's nothing you can do and uh uh, saved or not saved, it's not, not uh, within your control. So Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time? We're going to have to pick different proof texts. They, they, they use the same proof text for everything. It's like like all their doctrines are loaded into these verses, which if you read them, have, have absolutely nothing to do with the doctrines they're trying to get from them. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God of god irresistible grace no no um there's it, it, there's nothing there that's saying that uh i mean it, it it is it's it's completely laughable um here he is saying unless unless you're born of water in the spirit you can't enter the kingdom and they go well i guess there's nothing i can do to reject it you know it's like <laughs> They, they they put on their Calvinist glasses and they're like, oh, wow, this this text, what this text means is once you're chosen, there's nothing you can do. It's uh, irresistible. 
and uh, <laughs> you're drawn to heaven. And that which is born of flesh is flesh, except Jesus, because he was born of, of Mary. And, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, uh, except, uh, you know. And so they have all of these little things that they'll come in and they'll pack on and they'll sandwich in and they'll add on and they'll slice and dice and reorganize. And yeah, it gets, it gets, uh, it gets, it gets a, a little tiresome, actually. Having been set free from this, um, you know, th there's there's only so much of this that you can you can handle, and you're going, my my goodness, why why are we now on what is this uh, verse 12, 15, and not one of these actually teaches what you're saying they teach, brother? Like why why why? But again, it comes back to the fact that they don't do their own investigation into their systematic; they just take it on face value. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's just it's just not there. There's only so much of turning to John we could do, so I'm just going to grab a random one. How about Psalms uh, 65.4? So we'll, we'll turn to Psalms 65.4 to mix things up. I'm studying John and Romans. Like, like come on, Calvinists. There, there's a whole Bible here. Okay, so uh, Psalms 65.4, Blessed is the one you chose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with your goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Uh, irresistible grace. No, it, it, what's what's great is look at the analogy and the reference to courts. This this conjures up the royal identity of God as Lord and King. And if, anytime you go to before the King, you have to petition and ask for Him to grant you admittance into the court. Sometimes He can call and say, "Hey, I want that one over there to come to me. Go and compel him." But that that's not implicit in every understanding of being granted into the court. Many times you're able to come in and say, I, I want an audience with the king. And he can say yes or no. But within their very finite understanding of, of who God is in Scripture, they have to have a very narrow understanding of how we dwell in his courts. Right. It's so not, say, say, say I, I, I changed this verse, and now it's a marriage verse. Blessed is the one who Chris Fisher marries and chooses uh, to bring into my house. She shall be satisfied with the goodness of my house and uh, the happiness of my house. Does that mean that whoever I choose as my wife can't resist? Is that implicit in in that statement? No, it's, it's there's there's nothing in there that is negating the the ability of the other one to respond positively or negatively. There's nothing in there saying that it's irresistible or conditionless or. It's just, it's just not here. Um, so that's a good reading comprehension technique to ward against special pleading. Special pleading is just assuming that your one special idea, your one special way of reading something, your one special way of taking some sort of evidence only applies to this one time. So if, if you take a concept and you switch around the nouns, you switch around the verbs maybe, and you see if it equally applies to other scenarios, and if it doesn't hold, that means whatever original reading you had was special pleading. Like if you take every single verse about God knowing all things as this some sort of ungenerated, eternal, divine knowledge of all things, but anytime the phrase is used to man, you take it in a limited sense, this is special pleading. It's not it's not treating the same phrase used uh, against different subjects in the same manner. 
it's saying well, this, this came up in, in, in our my recent debate with with uh, Mr. Martin because uh, when we're talking about Augustinian understanding of concupiscence or epithumia or yetzer, when it relates to man, they say inherited sinful nature. But then Jesus used that word to describe himself, and they're like, "Oh, that 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 can't mean Jesus was was sinful." So there's this inconsistent. Uh, reading and, and, and redefining of these terms, and it's it's whatever is expedient to the system. It it has it has no regard for context or or logic or reason or consistency, uh, immediate context or broader context. It it doesn't care about the language or the grammar. It's just whatever is expedient to the systematic. Can I can I squint, squeeze, and twist and make this fit into the tulip? Great, I defended my theology. Yeah, I'm going to have to steal that from you. Whatever is expedient to the system is their interpretation. So this verse has nothing to do with uh, irresistible election. I don't even think it's about salvation uh, through Christ's atonement, anything like that. King David is thinking about people. He's thinking about normal Israelite worship experience, uh, not eternal salvation based on the blood of Christ. Another. Uh, it's the it's the it's it's the temple. It, it's. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> oh, I, I, I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. All right, so uh, ha have we done, uh, we, we read their Ephesians verse, and we just grabbed another one for irresistible grace. We'll do the last one, perseverance or preservation of the saints. What does that mean? Uh, depending on what Calvinist camp you fall into, you can have preservation of the saints, meaning that those God foreordained and decreed would be saved. He will ensure and seal and preserve them and, and, and guarantee that nothing happens to them so that they can't be not saved. Uh, sometimes you'll see perseverance with an emphasis on they have to prove their salvation by works. But that's a kind of a smaller understanding within greater Calvinism. It's almost always, I've acknowledged God via mental assent. I, I've, I've confirmed that I understand th these Calvinist doctrines. So therefore, no matter what I do, whether I you know, live like the devil or renounce my faith, I'm essentially, and this is a, a crude comparison, but it's once saved, always saved. There's nothing I can do now that I've been saved. And because God decreed it in eternity past, it will be done. But again, it goes back to that conditionless. You can be as evil as you want, but if God decreed you to be saved, you're saved. So my understanding of this is this is uh, Calvin's no true Scotsman fallacy. Calvin had his entire city of Geneva, and uh, they're all Calvinists, right? And they're good practicing Calvinists. But guess what? Some people, they turn away from Calvinism. Which, uh-oh, that's a problem because you got irresistible grace, uh, you got uh, limited atonement, you got unconditional election, and people who are good, believing Calvinists turn against Calvin, and so it's no true Scotsman. Uh, these guys were never saved in the first place, right? If they were saved, God would have ensured that they wouldn't have fallen away. They wouldn't have became super evil they would have been forced to do all these good things. The fact that these people have become evil is proof that they were never saved in the first place. That's it. I mean, dead on, brother. I mean, that that's putting the nail in that one. So AP, uh, so the AP, that's like a study guide type thing. So this is how they define it. 
If someone claims to have turned their life towards God and then stops living that way, a Calvinist might say that they were never truly saved. No, no true Scotsman. You, you got a friend or something or someone on your side and then they do something evil and you say, oh, that guy was never a uh, Republican in the first place. That guy was a never a uh, Democrat in the first place. They, they're not associated with us. Or maybe like the day before you would have now, gladly associated. A There's a caveat here. So this is a no true Scotsman when it relates to someone that you don't care about. Okay. They were never a Calvinist if I don't care about them. If, I, if I'm not emotionally invested in their eternal security, then they were never one of us. If I love them, let's say it's my child or my sibling or my spouse, and they turn from Calvinism, then they're sealed for the day of redemption, and I can have assurance of their salvation. Because again, remember, this is about whatever is expedient to their current systematic. So if, if I love my son and he rejects Calvinism, but he once affirmed it, then I can understand perseverance of the saints to mean he's going to go to heaven. But if it's the neighbor's boy, 10 houses down, and I couldn't give a lick, and he renounces Calvinism, then he was never saved. Granted, uh, Matt Slick doesn't think his daughter is probably saved, <laughs> even though she was a professing Calvinist. So, so you'll get a medley. And I'm sure people do the, that justification, but some Calvinists are mentally consistent on this issue and apply it to their own kids. Example being Matt Slick. But let's see if the Bible. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sorrow. Uh, there's a lot of sorrow with that. My heart breaks for that. It's it's a bad situation, and uh, yeah, I, I don't. We don't want to revel in his misery. Or his daughter's spiritual state. It's a bad yeah. situation. Yeah. But we'll see if the Bible teaches this perseverance or preservation of the saints. John 17, 20. John 17, 20. We got this. I do not ask for these only, but also, also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe and that, that you have sent me. So what's going on here? Is this a proof text for perseverance of the saints? Well, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing in here that's teaching that. And what you see is that there is a condition and there is an assumption of um, possibility either way. Jesus is not speaking with certainty. He is asking that this might be done. And that necessitates the possibility that it might not be done. Right. Uh, so he's interceding. And so you see here that he's saying, I'm, I'm praying for those who believe in me through their word. And I'm praying for those that will come after them. And um, he, he wants us all to be one. But you'll see these conditional statements that say might, may. Uh, it's not as you decreed in eternity past or that you will do. Uh, these, these are conditional statements. Yeah, the question is, what is Jesus communicating to God? Right? What, what flow of information, what concept is being exchanged here? If Jesus is asking God to do something... Does that mean that thing exists? It, even Let's pretend this is all about uh, preservation, perseverance of the saints. Let's pretend both verses, absolutely all about that. Jesus says, please preserve this, the saints. Does that mean preservation of the saints is a true doctrine? Well, what, what's, what's interesting here is that um, 
Jesus is expecting for the Father to interact with him. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like Jesus is teaching that there is a living God, not a perfect marble in space somewhere. You know? Yeah, there's a flow of information. God yeah, is receiving like, information. And, 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 and Lord, please, this is what I want. Will you do this? And maybe, maybe we can have this exchange of information. And this is what I want. I'm going to express my desire. And this is, Lord, please let them be one as we're. That doesn't fit within their entire worldview. And, and this is the first proof text they list for perseverance of the saints. I see nothing suggesting that Jesus thought that perseverance of the saints was a thing. I see a request uh, that may or may not reflect reality. God may or may not grant this request. Those, those are possibilities. I, I don't see it in their number one proof text. So maybe their number proof two proof text. We just didn't go down far enough. 2 Peter 3, 9. So we'll turn there now. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. I, should, I shouldn't laugh, but this it completely uh, undermines their entire systematic. Okay, so Perseverance of the Saints, does this teach that, that once you become a Christian, a, a worshiper of God, that there's nothing that you, you're forced into moral compliance you can't fall away in any sense whatsoever is, is that what this says no um again i mean he, he's sitting here he's slow he's patient not willing that any should perish why didn't he decree in eternity past that 99 percent of the human population would perish and and fall under his wrath like none of this is actually consistent within their systematic it it completely unravels. I'd like to point out that we're using the ESV, which is the Calvinist's preferred translation, and you just used an NIV word. So let's let's switch over to the NIV. Maybe it's not the NIV, but the NIV word. Not willing that any should perish. That's, a, that's an NIV translation. So let's go look at the Calvinist favored uh, translation and uh, see how they translate it. That God is not wishing that any should perish. God has hopes. God, God, well, I, I would like to know what star God wished that on, uh, and, and and cast his penny into the well and but, made a wish. Who is he appealing to? But here's the thing about the word: um, if it's a hope, does God hope in Calvinism? Does he have hopes? No, in, in Calvinism, there there's no reason to hope. There is no if per chance or uh, hopefully or. There, there, there is, there is no um, love. Hopes all things. Certainty within Calvinism. Yeah, so God can't have hope in a set world which He controls all things. Hope's not a thing because it's uncertainty. It's wishing for something that might or might not happen. And uh, so the the fact that they translate this not wishing, and I think it's going to be used synonymously with hoping. I, I don't think it, they mean wish upon a star. I don't. I, I think the the word I pulled it up. It's going to be disposed to. This is this is where your mind is is focused on. This is your will. It's going to speak to desires. Is what it, is what it's really speaking to. And I think that people do perish. And so I think that. Sometimes in this own verse, 
that Peter's using, uh, he acknowledges that some people do perish, that God's bulamai, God's will, is thwarted. Mm-hmm. But they won't. We see, we see in the, the prayer of the Lord, uh, where he says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we have, we have a real problem with that if we're holding on to a Augustinian Neoplatonist worldview wherein his perfect will is being done here. Maybe not his secret will or his revealed will, but certainly his secret will. Um, but no, you're right. It, God doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I, I'm going to put on my, you want to finish that thought real quick? Yeah, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm going to put on my Calvis goggles. Let's see here. <laughs> put on my Calvis goggles. And I'm reading this verse. I'm a Calvinist. Uh, God's will is never thwarted. If God's will is thwarted, he's a failure. So God wills that none should perish means that uh, none, pe- none of the people will perish. But there are perishing people. So definitely he's not talking about those people. He's talking about only the saints, they will not perish. So this verse means my theology. I think that's the mindset going in reading this. It's just you you can easily come to this text from a different perspective and read all the concepts differently. The only way you're reading the Calvinist concept from this text is if you start with that concept. That's it. No one no one came to Calvinism without being taught and indoctrinated into Calvinism, and then they go to Scripture and read it in. You don't simply read Scripture and come away a Neoplatonist, Manichaean-laced worldview. Like You have to take these concepts to the text. Um, but the sad thing is, is we've sat at the, the feet of a teacher who sat at the feet of a teacher who sat at the feet of a teacher, and it goes all the way back, and we think that we've been spared their influence, and we're just operating on the latest software. We're not... We haven't changed the, the platform at all. We're still following Augustine and many and, and Plato, and, and we're not following Christ and the apostles and uh, the scriptures, but we don't realize that's what we're doing. So last one. So maybe, maybe this, is, this is the key to it all. This will finally be the proof text that breaks the bank. It is uh, Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. This is Paul writing. That he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, perseverance of the saints. No. Um, it, it, it's, it's not speaking of, of, a, of, a, of, of you and saying that, that you can't do these things. Or that if you fall away, you never were there to fall from. Uh, it's just speaking of the goodness and fidelity of God. It's not assuming uh, anything about us and our fidelity. It's just it's a statement about about Christ. So, what if I said to you, "I'm sure Trump's going to get reelected"? What what does that imply in your mind that this is a metaphysically set thing? I think that metaphysically, Trump will get elected. Is is that what what you think in your mind? If I say, "I am sure of this that Trump will be reelected." It's speaking of the confidence of the writer. Right, it is speaking of the confidence of the writer. And so he's saying to the Philippians that uh, he's sure that God's going to complete a work in them. It's a letter to people. And so the Calvinists, they have to do this thing where they universalize this greeting. This is this is the greeting. It's like, hi, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I hope things are good. And they're like, he hopes things are good. Uh-oh, that means 
he he he's he's assured that things are good for all believers everywhere or something like that. It's it's a greeting, and he's basically saying, "Yeah, I'm I'm sure you guys are doing great in Jesus, and uh, at the day of Jesus Christ, you know these things will be acknowledged. Your your work for Christ is going to be complete, acknowledged. You're going to get blessings. You're going to get treasures in heaven. I'm sure of it because you guys are. I know you people. I know you, and uh, I know this is going to happen. And yeah. so and this this shouldn't be like we don't we don't want to just leave the context of Philippians, but we also don't want to ignore the greater context either. So you look at like First Corinthians, uh, is it fifteen? I recently did a, a video calling out Vadi Bachman because he ignored the ifs. He said, "In which you stand, by which you are being saved, um, you know, unless you believed in vain." So he's like, "I am confident God's going to do this." unless you believed in vain and all of that standing and hearing and believing is, is cast away as, as worthless. And, and, and so it just really ignores not only the immediate context, but the greater context of, of scripture. And it, it reads into it things that are just not present. Right. So uh, assuming that Paul is talking about a metaphysical inability for people to fall away when he says i'm sure of this I, I have great confidence in this thing that would be the opposite of uh having metaphysical certainty it, it would be uh, to use your analogy you could you could say i'm sure president trump's going to get elected again and you're looking at all the poll data and all of the the information in front of you would lead you to conclude that but that doesn't eliminate the possibility that perhaps he might get sick and have to withdraw or that you know some outside thing occurs and, and changes the paradigm. Um, it, it's not it's not speaking to that degree of certainty. It, it's a general um, affirmation. I don't even think this is about salvation. I'm not sure. I, I don't think this is about if you don't uh, develop in these good works. If it's not brought to completion, then you're not a Christian. I don't think this is about that. I think it's just about self improvement. You guys are approving yourself. Uh, that's a great thing to do. I'm sure that uh, on the day of Jesus, uh, you guys will be full-grown Christians. You won't be babes in Christ anymore. I think it's just encouragement for personal development. I I don't see perseverance of the saints in this verse. No, that's a possible reading. Uh, that's certainly a good possible reading. And then, but again, I mean, I, I don't. There's, there's a dozen ways where we can look at this, and but none of them have uh, perseverance of the saints in here. So summarizing basically everything we talked about so far, I think that last statement you made is pretty critical. When you come to these texts, there's a half a dozen to a dozen different ways to read the text. The text itself does not explain the text. It doesn't uh, go over their concepts and details. It's, we're not reading a systematic theology where it says, unconditional election and then it, t it explains that concept in detail instead what is happening is they're turning to random phrases assuming that those phrases mean their theology and nothing in the context describes that phrase uh, they they don't consider alternative readings of that phrase just because that phrase could could there's an option to take it to mean their theology they use it as a proof text for their theology. Bad proof texts are proof texts which can be read in a different way. So that's why, for example, in open, theos, in open theism, I don't advise people to use 
the example of God saying that the command to kill uh, their children never entered his mind because it easily could be read to say God, it never entered God's mind to command people to kill their children, which a Calvinist could say that, yeah, he never, it never entered his mind to make that a commandment for Israel to follow. It's a possible reading, so it's not a good proof text because there are alternative readings. If your proof text is not very explicit, has supporting context, it's not a good proof text. And the, this, this is the problem with every single proof text we've turned to so far. The, no, nothing in the context supports their specific reading. And alternative readings often are better. Often uh, the, the context contradicts what they're saying. Sometimes, sometimes the very verse that they use as a proof text, normal reading of it will contradict the idea that they're trying to proof text. Mm -hmm. So did you, uh, you want to throw any... Uh, also, other ending thoughts on top of all of that? Boy, uh, just that, that I believe that there can be inconsistent Calvinists that mentally affirm these doctrines, but in their heart they love and follow Jesus. And so when the real world situation appears and they're left, do I operate as though my doctrine is true or do I operate in faith and fidelity to Christ, they fortunately being inconsistent follow christ so, and i i love inconsistent calvinists because i believe that there is uh room for them to grow and eventually flee that that systematic but there are consistent calvinists and that's heartbreaking but what you'll see about this entire systematic is that it so fundamentally skews and alters the nature of who god is who man is what sin is what righteousness is the reason why Christ even came, what he accomplished, that Calvinism so fundamentally alters the gospel that it makes it unknowable. And so for those that are caught up in this theology, uh, they need to know that this doctrine places them at tremendous peril, um, and they, they need to stop letting others think for them they need to stop looking at whoever has the nicest suit and whoever has the radio show in the seminary, and they need to stop reading their commentaries, and they need to dust off their Bible. They need to read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation chronologically in order. They need to look at multiple translations. They need to go to the Greek and the Hebrew, and they need to pray that the Lord deliver them from any theological error and walk them into truth. And I'm confident that if they mean that, the Lord will honor it. Yeah, I, I find that uh, sometimes you have to convert Calvinists to Calvinism before you can convert them away. Because oh, amen to that. Yeah, amen to that. I, I posted a poll in a Calvinist group, over 100 responses, uh, do you affirm divine simplicity? And most of them had never heard of it. A majority of them have never heard of divine simplicity. I posted a different poll. There's a 50 to 100 responses. Does God have free will? 75% said yes. So Calvinists by and large, don't understand Calvinism. And so sometimes you have to say, that's, that's not what Calvinism teaches. If you're a Calvinist, these are the things you have to believe, and these are the reasons why. And uh, so sometimes you make more headway with uh, converting them to Calvinism rather than away. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's, it's funny that what, what we've experienced here is a problem that I encounter all the time with Calvinists. If you're debating a Calvinist proof text, 
really that the discussions often devolve with these hardcore Calvinists into them just claiming that you need the special elect goggles to read their specific meaning into the verses. They, they, they literally do. They say, oh, you can't read this because you're not elect. Regenerated. You're not, you don't have the, the revelation of God to understand this. You're not regenerated. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe you're using the word regenerated, but you mean indoctrinated. Right. Like, it's a, I consider that maybe like we're, we're both seeking God and truth here, and you're just blinded by indoctrination. One of, one of the things in the, the, the debate that I engaged in, there was a lot of shotgunning proof texts, and I came very well prepared. Every, every proof text that I've, I've ever heard of or, or studied or found that taught Calvinism or was claimed to have taught Calvinism, I exegeted um, and was ready for that. But when you're, when you're given 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 proof texts and you're saying, these all teach it, that's a real easy claim to make. I, I could come in and, and, and quote, 30 pr proof texts and say that uh, Walt Disney was the Messiah, but that doesn't make the claim valid. Now I have to stop if I'm going to rebuke that, and I've got to go through each one of these proof texts and go, where does it say Walt Disney is the Messiah? It doesn't. Where does it say Walt Disney is the Messiah? And so in order to argue against this and exegete this, it takes considerable time uh, and I think that's another reason why a lot of them have never really been seriously challenged, uh, because a lot of people just go, oh, who has the time for this? So you know, my, my advice, and I've told it to you before, you know it, uh, you, you tell them, here's the rule of thumb. If I turn to your first proof text and it doesn't say what you say it claims, then they all should be discarded. You need to make a positive case uh, instead of just shotgunning proof text. And so that that's that is the least time-consuming method of showing them that their actions are without merit. They, they don't have an uh, intellectual case for their position. It's a great, great point. All right. So I, I guess I would, I'm a betting man. I guess if we would turn to any of these, there's a lot of verses here. I, I'm guessing if we turn to any one of these for any single thing that they're trying to proof text, we're not going to find it there. You have to have the Calvinist special goggles to read it into those texts. This, this is this is not the way to do biblical theology. It's not, it's not scholarly, and it really it, it's all about that uh, milieu control where you have to be in the Calvinist mindset when you're coming to the Bible, and then you'll truly see Calvinism in the Bible. And that, that's that's dangerous. It's it's a it's a dangerous mindset. You'll see sin, Jesus death and they go there's my systematic well wait a minute that just says sin death and jesus like can you break out what you're reading into this um and 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 so much of it is entirely absent from the scriptures um but lord 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 have mercy on them they i don't think they've ever stopped to consider it right so one one test i also do to them is i say if i brought this passage to them all and I asked 10 random people who look like competent readers. You're not going to be asking like three-year-olds or anything like that. Or You could also do the children test. If I brought this to random nine-year-olds, what would the nine-year-olds say about this text? I find that Calvinists don't want to answer that question. They don't want to, they, they, they don't want to theoretically uh, answer what a, a testable claim, what an average reader 
would take away from their tasks. They, they, they don't want to do that or e even subject themselves to that mental hypothetical. It doesn't mean that the average reader is always right, but it does tell you that if, if the average reader is going to read something different than their takeaway, it gives you some indication that that text doesn't necessarily mean their proof text. And that's a mental experiment that they don't want to participate in. It's testable. You, you could go to the wall and test it yourself. It's not, it's not something, it's, it's, it's falsifiable. It's a way to show someone they're wrong. What, you, what, what I find coming on the other side of it now that's so infuriating is this rejection of reason as being antithetical to truth. And so when you come in and you say, that's an unreasonable claim, or that's an illogical claim, or that's a self-refuting or self-contradictory claim, or any, any number of points that you can show them where they're in error, uh, they will appeal to mystery and they will look at reason and, and logic and, and just common sense with uh, a sense of despising it as being antithetical to biblical truth. And, and I think that's just simply a result of cognitive dissonance. When you, when you come in and you say, look, if you're claiming that in our natural state we can't know truth, for instance, then how do you know you know truth now? That you, you've completely undermined your ability. It's like when you're debating an atheist and they're appealing to naturalism. Like, how, do, how can you appeal to knowing truth? It's the exact same self-refuting uh, argument. And, and instead of acknowledging this, they'll, they'll appeal and say, well, you were never regenerated or, you know, reason is, reason is, is, uh, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't go to scripture, you know, using reason and wisdom and logic. Like, let's leave that at the door. This is Calvinism. You, you, you can't take the natural reading of a text. You, you have to have the special reading. All the other readings are false. All right. I've kept you for, I don't know, about two hours. We'll probably cut this down to about an hour, 30 minutes or something like that. Oh, you got but, at least four minutes of good material in here. <laughs> at least four minutes. So this, yeah, this, four. this episode will be at least four minutes. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> My dad, he calls me up so angry the other day. He's like, you posted a video that was only two minutes long. It's like, that was my joke. I, it took me like five minutes to make that video, dad. And I've posted normal videos in the meantime. So it's like, this is just like extra icing on the cake. I don't know. He's, I, I can't be doing long videos all the time. But anyways, no. that's just, uh, that's funny. But uh, I, I think we covered this fairly well. I think... Uh, It'd be very interesting to have debates on some of these issues with Calvinists, perseverance of the saints, uh, limited atonement. That's that's interesting. And it all boils down to total depravity, as you pointed out, that man has zero ability. God has all ability. That's why you see them so focused in debates on what percent is man? What percent is God? If any percent is man, then uh, God is incapable and incompetent. It's, it's the, their obsession. It's the things they care about. And because they care about it so much, they think that we care about it so much because that's all they talk about. This is very timely, too, because I'm getting ready to go through all of the proof texts for total depravity that I'm aware of that have been presented to me over the years and that I've uh, found in just personal study. And in-depth exegete each one as an ongoing series and as any random weird one comes up that someone has a question about, we'll just continue to add that to the same series. It's going to be a dedicated thing over on Idol Killer. So we're going to be exegeting all of the total depravity proof texts. Uh, so if there's one, anyone out there...
wow, this is the gotcha one we'll be able to answer, go ahead and message me. Uh, and I promise you it's probably already in there and it's going to uh, be exegeted in this series. But that's going to be coming up. So when you messaged me and you said, let's do this, uh, I thought, man, this is perfectly yeah. timely because I've been working on this for my channel as well. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, they, I just see Revelation 5.9 in the Limited Atonement. Uh, is that probably the number of people to be <laughs> saved? That's probably what's going on there. But anyways... Uh, we'll maybe have to tackle some of these in the future. If anyone has any questions about any of these verses, if they prove any of these things, again, send that to Warren. Warren McGruff, Scruff McGruff. And yep. uh, he will detective it with his uh, Scruff McGruff skills. And that should be Got good. It. Got it. I'll get my magnifying glass out. We'll we'll go on a hunt for clues and we'll find out who the perpetrator. The murderer was Calvin. Blues, clues, blues, clues. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, I, I thank you so much for coming on. I had a, a great time. This is a fun thought exercise. And, uh, you know, it's worthwhile doing these things, going over these proof texts and just talking about these concepts, what, what makes good proof texts and what doesn't and how well uh, anything supports any position. A great thought exercise for anyone to do. So I thank you for spending your time tonight to go over these with me. Thanks for having me, man. I, I, I've always uh, enjoyed visiting with you, and this was this was a blast. We can do it again. Fantastic. If anyone has comments, questions, put that uh, down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.